0: 666, the Antichrist, the rapture of the church, planes flying without a pilot or anybody in the plane, one world government, one world religion, invasion of Israel by Russia, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the binding of the dragon, the thousand year reign, a 1400 mile tall cubicle city, streets of gold, are those the things that come to mind when I say the book of Revelation? Are you thinking, what are we doing this for? Why a series in the book of Revelation? Are you nervous about it? Would it have been wise to follow the example of John Calvin, the great Bible scholar who never taught on Revelation because he couldn't understand it? Are you thinking, oh boy, not quite the sermon series I want to be inviting my friends and neighbors to. Or maybe you're thinking, Wow, this is the sort of sermon series I want to invite my friends and neighbors to, you know, dragons and and beasts and frogs and locusts and the antichrist, they'll want to hear this stuff. But what I want to do this morning is to teach uh, on this book, this wonderful book, and to address some of those ideas that are there. I actually want to, by and large, push them all aside so that the intention that God has in this wonderful book for us would be realized. That we would enjoy what God wants us to enjoy. And I would submit to you and I hope to persuade you from the Scripture itself that all those things are not what Revelation is about. Though it includes some of those things, even most of those things, it's not what it's really about. That that God has good and blessing for His people from this wonderful book. So I want to introduce the series. I want to kind of help push aside all the prejudices and persuade you of the benefit from it, the book itself, and then prepare you for this series. This series will run for almost a year actually. So we're going to get into this book. Um, and, and benefit from it, I trust. I actually talked to a pastor just uh, a couple days ago well, in one of our sister churches who who took his church through the book of Revelation? And he told me people were saying that that was the very best sermon series we've ever had. Can you believe that? So, just to give you some hope for this series, and I hope through this time as well, to, to help you understand that this book has much benefit and is very accessible and useful and, and really is meant to be a blessing and life transforming. So, with that in mind, let's pray before we get into the book. And go before the Lord. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. All of Your Word. Lord, You are the everlasting God. You are glorious. You are great. You are perfect. And Lord, You love us. You love Your people with an everlasting love. And You long that those who don't know You would come to You. And and Lord, we thank You for who You are. And we thank You that You've given us Your Word. That through Your Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, we might encounter You and know You. Thank You for the book of Revelation. And I ask You to help me now to teach, to proclaim, and help us to listen and hear and receive the benefit from Your Word that You intend. And that You would be glorified through this, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. I just want to read the first few verses of the book. Um, Often when we do a series, I'll read through the whole book, but this is 22 chapters, so that's a little too long. Uh, I want to encourage you, and I'll say this again at the end, to this week actually, sit down and if you can, in one setting, read through the whole book. If not, take chunks of it throughout the week and read through the whole thing. I hope to make that uh, something that in your mind is something you want to do, by the way. So right now you're be like, whoa, Revelation, I don't want to touch it. But I uh, just want to encourage you to, to take time to read through it. I'm just going to read the first three verses of chapter 1. And it says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that, may, that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw." Then this, verse 3, Blessed is the One who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." This text that we just read teaches us that Revelation is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be a blessing to those who read it out loud, to those who hear it, and to those who keep its truths. This book is intended by God to be a real, practical, and even daily blessing for you, for us. And so I want to do what I can to help that happen for us. I want to persuade us that this is an important book, a helpful book, a great blessing for any who engage it seriously. Then I want to equip you through this particular message and through the series as well to interact with this book. To have it be something that you could actually would read aloud and would listen to and would seek to obey. So that's what I'm what I'm after, so I just want to go through some things, some points here. So you have notes, I think the notes were available. I want to first just talk about why Revelation. Why are we doing Revelation? Why are we choosing a, a series on the book of Revelation? It's, it's not because we just want to jump on the bandwagon of popular fiction or movies, not because uh, we're going to try to figure out the exact date of Christ's return somehow at the end of this. You're not going to announce this is the date, let's all prepare for it. It's not even to spice things up, you know, just, well, Boy, how can we spice things up in our sermon series? Maybe have a, have a, you know, a sermon series that kind of gets everyone excited about the sermon and gets us to invite guests. That's not it. I mean, sure, i love that to happen, but that's not what we're after. Really, the main reason we're doing the book of Revelation is because it's in the Bible. And it's a prominent book in the Bible. It's the last book, Right? It's the last book in the Bible. It is likely the last book that was written in the whole canon of Scripture. When I say canon, that's basically the, the books that we know are the very Word of God. God uh, gave us His revelation and then closed the canon and basically gave us this series of books. This is His very Word. So it's the last one. Likely the last one written in the whole canon. So the last book is noteworthy because it's the last. It's 22 chapters long. It's a big book, right? It's a significant book. And so if we want to have a diet as a church, and really our job as pastors is to serve a well-rounded diet to God's people. That we might be nourished. We might be healthy. We might grow into the image of Christ. That we might do the things that Christ calls us to. To to live uh, like Him. To love the lost. To love one another. To worship God. And so we want to offer a full diet. And so we need to include everything that's on the menu, and this is a big item on the menu. Now, some of you might be thinking, "Yeah, it's kind of like you know at those restaurants that have anchovy pizza at the very end of the menu that probably nobody ever orders." So, you know, this is revelation is anchovy, the anchovy pizza of the menu. Uh, and I would just say, uh, "Well, if we're going to be committed to the whole menu, then let's do the anchovy pizza, right? If we want a full diet." But I don't think it's anchovy pizza. Um, I think it's actually a barbecue bacon cheeseburger with cheddar cheese. You know those really big juicy ones you can get? That's what the book of Revelation is, I think. You can tell I wrote, I wrote this section of my message when I was really hungry. Um. But that's what it is on the menu. It's a significant part of the menu. And if we want to eat the diet that God has put before us, then we want to be in this book. And so we've been actually waiting quite a long time to do this series I've been preparing for a while. I kept on putting it off, just so you know. <laughs> it's Revelation, it's intimidating. But here we are now, ordering the thing on the menu uh, because it's God's menu. Um, I want you to know that, that, uh, that this is not a throwaway book for just kind of dramatic you know, fiction. This is a book that's intended to be understood and applied and to have an effect. To have a great blessing. That's what it says in, in verse 3, right? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's how it starts out. The book starts out saying, blessed is the one who hears it, keeps it, and basically obeys it. Right in the beginning. It also says a very similar thing at the very end of the book as well. The last part of the book, chapter 22, verses 16-21, to it says... um, Jesus is speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you about these things. Yeah, we have that to project. Thank you. These things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away His share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so the book finishes with a similar sort of statement as it begins with. This is something given to us. A testimony to us about these things uh, we're invited by God through this book to come, to come and, t- and to take the water of life without price. There's an invitation to come and find life and refreshment in this book. And then there's a warning, basically says take this book seriously. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. And I would just submit that if we ignore this book, we are taking away from it, aren't we? We're taking the whole thing away, aren't we? We're just saying, let's just act like Revelation's not in the canon. It's not in the Bible. So we are disobeying actually. So God invites us into this book. He encourages us us to come to this book to receive blessing, to come and have our, our thirst satisfied in the truths in this book. And then He commands us, don't subtract, don't add to it. Don't add your ideas to it that aren't there. But don't neglect it either. Engage with this book. So we want to do that. We want to engage. We want to be blessed. We want to come to uh, respond to His invitation. And we want to be changed by that. So that's why we're doing it. And you know what? We need this book. We need this book. And we need it probably in a more poignant way than we've ever known before our current reality, the things that are going on in our culture, press the need for this book in in tremendous ways. This book is about living as God's people under His reign, but as strangers in a strange land. Living in a a place where, where there's conflict, where there are enemies. Where it seems at points that the church and God's people would fail but where God reigns and rules over that and, and works to rescue His people and to bring judgment against His enemies and to bring a final and full victory. That's what this book is about. It's about how to live in light of His reign but as strangers in a strange land. And more and more so, we feel as strangers in a strange land in our culture, don't we? There was a time once where the Christian faith and values and practices, the, Christian worldview and lifestyle were, were the most influential viewpoint of the culture. There was a time when that was true. Now, I'm not saying the Christians did it perfectly and the culture got that perfectly, but it was true that it was the most dominant worldview in our culture. And then that kind of transitioned to a time where the Christian worldview uh, was kind of considered kind of quaint and old-fashioned, but still positive. Well, that's nice. That, that's nice. That's old-fashioned. Now we are entering into a time of history, and are really in it, where people don't think it's quaint. They see the Christian worldview at times, not everybody, but often in probably the mainstream even of the culture currently, as bigoted, ignorant, backwards, and even unworthy of, of constitutional protection. That's where, where things are now. Things have shifted. We don't know where it's going to go. And I'm not saying we we need to pine for the old days. The old days had their problems. We want what the Lord wants. We want to walk in these truths. Whatever He has. We live in an increasingly hostile culture much more similar to the storyline of Revelation than perhaps before in American history. And we need this book. We need this book to understand how to live. We need this book to have the right perspective and the inspiration to live with hope with faith, with love, with obedience and and effectiveness even as strangers in a strange land. This book equips us to live as actually most Christians have lived in most places over time. The usual experience of Christians is, is to live in a culture where it's very clear they are strangers in a strange land. This book equips us to live like our brothers and sisters. It equips us to live like brothers and sisters in the 1st and 2nd century. I came across a letter to Diognetus written around 130 A.D. And listen to this description. I think we have this to project. as he's uh, uh, Someone's writing to him and describing Christians. This is what he says uh, about Christians. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in this very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repaid the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. That's a letter to Diognetus about Christians. And if you followed some of the things that have gone on in Egypt in the response of the Coptic church there, you'll see something very similar. They have been persecuted yet have turned to forgive and implore people to come to Christ. This book, the book of Revelation, equips us to live like this. To understand this is who we are. Strangers in a strange land. To equip us as American Christians how to live in our culture. So that's why we're doing Revelation. That's why we're going through this book. And that's what we're expecting God to do. Well, what are some of the things that we need to know to help us best engage this book? Well, first off, I think we need to know that it's often misunderstood. We need to acknowledge that this book is often misunderstood. There's all sorts of ideas that are out there. All sorts of sensationalism that, that is out there that kind of distracts us from getting the message of this book. So we just need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge there are some ideas that are out there that, that will distract us if we're not careful. First, I just want to say frankly, I think the history of dispensationalism in the U.S. is a distraction from enjoying this book. Dispensationalism basically is the idea that, that there's a dramatic difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A dramatic, strong, even drastic difference between the covenant uh, with God's people in the Old Testament and versus the covenant in the New Testament. And there's a lot of things that fall from that. Now, certainly there are differences. Um, and we've as a church just gone through the Old Testament, right? But we've, And we've seen the connections. There's a strong continuity. But if you hold the dispensational view, you wouldn't agree necessarily with with how we've understood the Bible in terms of the connections between the Old and the New. And how it relates to the book of Revelation is that that whole grid gets imported into the book of Revelation. And so, the, the book ends up bringing people's attention or talking about some of the issues that are part of that theology, so the rapture of the church becomes part of the thinking that gets imported into the book of Revelation. I, I, the idea of the rapture of the church. National Israel in its place. the the correlation of the book of revelation and what's going on in the 20th or 21st century trying to connect current national Israel or Russia with all you know Gog and Magog and all that this idea that somehow I've got to connect it with modern history the millennial reign which is in the book these different ideas because of the theological heritage of dispensationalism kind of cloud our thinking about this book. So when we come to it, we think of all these other things. And these other things are addressed actually in the book, so it's not that these aren't addressed in one way or the other. But they're not what the book's about. They're tangential. They're not the the issue here. And so if that's your heritage, that's your mindset, I just want to encourage you, just, just ask God to give you grace to kind of set that aside to give you an open mind to hear the Word of God. Not an open mind that lets everything in, but an open mind that lets the Word of God in. Lord, teach me just to have that attitude. Lord, teach me from Your words, And I trust as we go through this book, you will see from God's very Word <coughs> truths and perspective that, that I would trust will shift your view if, if it's been immersed in dispensationalism. Now just don't hear what I'm not saying. I love my brothers and sisters who are in that camp of the, of the Christian world. They're, they're loved of Christ. But I don't think they're right in how they understand uh, the Scriptures. We would not hold that view uh, just as we study Scripture. So, anyhow, that's just a, a factor in this. Another thing is the millennial debates. So these are other things that we are misunderstood. Um, this is a controversial topic. The millennium, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ that's in the book, chapter 20, talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, with His people. The church has debated this issue for 2,000 years and as a whole has not come to agreement on it. There are different views about the rain. There are those who think the rain is before Christ comes back. And there are those who think the rain is after Christ has come back. Then there are those who think it's an earthly rain. Christ will reign with His people on earth. And those that think it's a heavenly rain. He reigns with His people in heaven. So depending on your view there, you're either what's called pre-millennial, you believe that he'll come back before the millennium. You're post-millennial, you believe he'll come back after the millennium. Or you're amillennial, which is basically a version of post-millennial that says that the reign he comes back after the rain, but the rain's in heaven right now with Christ and his people. So the, the amillennial is a misnomer because they do believe in a millennium, but they believe it's happening in heaven right now, Christ and his people. Now, we'll address that as we go through this series. But do you know how many verses in the book of Revelation talk about the Millennium? 22 chapters in the book. Let's say it's 22 verses each, right? So 400, maybe 500 verses in this book. How many verses talk about the Millennium? Seven. There's only seven verses on the Millennium. Now that doesn't mean we ignore it, we address it, but it's not a major topic obviously. And actually the millennium that's that's the only place the millennium is mentioned in the whole Bible. So I think that gives some perspective on the millennial views. Don't let your millennial view cloud your ability to receive the truth of revelation. So I just ask you, whatever shade of millennial glasses you have, post pre or ah, uh, take them off and look at the Bible with your regular eye and look at God's Word. I think you'll be served better by doing that. to so just kind of putting those things aside for now and walking through, through the Bible, walking through Revelation with us and getting all you can. And then, I'm not saying don't have a view. Please have a view. Please think through it. And I'd love to talk about it. I will present my view and why as we go through it. But I want you to know actually, there are Bible commentators and scholars who are just fantastic Bible scholars who. Uh, at least for my part, I would agree with almost everything that they say about Revelation except for the millennium. So so we can engage all the truth of, of Revelation and still differ on those seven verses and that's okay. Alright? So I will present my view, but I'm gonna, I want to present the Scripture and take you through it. And I think we'll best benefit by just removing that uh, from our, our sight. Uh, so... For some of us, some of you are probably like, what's this all about? (laughs) What's this millennium thing? i never heard it. That's okay too. That's okay too. You'll learn as we go through about it, and in some ways you're in a better position if you don't know much about the millennium because you'll be probably less biased as you engage this book. Other ways that it's misunderstood. Um, Often people interpret Revelation with a strong desire to anchor what happens in the book, with some point in history. And I think that makes it hard to get Revelation. It says actually in Revelation one nineteen something that I think is helpful. If You could project this. It says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So there's, Three different tenses there, right? Past, present, and future that John is writing about. And so I think it's wise as we approach Revelation to approach it in light of this and in the rest of the Bible too. uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. That addresses kind of the whole span of history. Not just one time period. And that's where people get tripped up is when they think Revelation is only about one time period. So some people, they're called preterists, which means past, They think the book of Revelation is all about stuff that happened already. It's all about uh, what happened between the reign of Nero and the fall of Jerusalem. And that's what it's all about. Now it applies beyond that, so they're not saying it has no application. But it's mostly about that. And they anchor themselves there. And I think they miss much of the benefit of the book. Then there are those who are called historicists. They, They look to link the book of Revelation to different epochs in church history. So like, this is the early church. This is the, you know, around the time of Augustine. This is the medieval church. This is the you know, current Western church. And this is the, you know, the end time church. And they try to, to link it in that way. And I, I think they miss the benefit as well because they're trying to connect it. And that's been going on throughout history. And you know, there's all sorts of ideas about that out there. Then there's the futurists who say it's all about, for the most part, the very end. The very end, right before Christ comes back. The last seven years, or the last whatever, three and a half years, the last a hundred years. It's all about right before He comes back. And so they seek to anchor it all in the future. But John is writing about things that he has seen, things that are, and things that are to take place. He's writing about the span of the whole church age. The whole, all of history. Since Christ uh, was raised from the dead to his return and the, and the final consummation. He's writing about the whole thing. So, just encourage you to understand that. That he's writing about the span of, of history. And that's how we'll understand Revelation. I think we'll benefit from it that way. So, a couple other things to know. Uh, and this would be a different sermon than other sermons because it's more teaching, but I just want to equip you guys so that you can read it this week and benefit from this series. So the, the other thing to know is that this book is apocalyptic. Um, that's a big word. Apocalyptic. Sounds, sounds like some sort of exotic uh, therapeutic oil or something that you put on. Apocalyptic. But apocalyptic uh, basically means revelation or uncovering. Uh, and, and this book is apocalyptic literature. It's literature that's consistent with other literature in the Bible. It's a form of writing and communicating that it, Appears elsewhere in the Bible, and that's really important to get. Revelation is not by itself; it's not a unique book. There are other books in the Bible, and sections of books that are sections of books that are very much like Revelation. And so, understanding that and, and understanding how apocalyptic literature works is really—it's hugely important. And I would say that much of the biblical scholarship on Revelation and the benefit that's come from it has come from this idea that. It's apocalyptic literature and we need to treat it as such. And if you don't do that, you, you don't get Revelation. And you'll, you'll end up confused and wondering what it's about. But if you see its similarity to other apocalyptic literature, uh, it'll make more sense. Well, let me illustrate that. So uh, first, let me tell you a little Well, no, I'm just going to read some sections. And then I want, I'm just going to ask some questions so, uh, about it. So I'm going to read a couple sections from other apocalyptic books that are parallel to the book of Revelation. So you can kind of see the similarity. What I want you to do is I want you to listen, and I'm not going to call anyone by name, but I want you to, to think about uh, you know, how, how these things are similar and what's going on. What do you recognize in these books? So first, from Zechariah. One of the apocalyptic books is the, the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, written uh, much before Revelation. Um, about 400 years or so before Revelation. In Zechariah 6, 1-8, through it says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses. The second, black horses. The third, white horses. And the fourth chariot, dappled horses. All of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, Zechariah 6, 1 to 8, and then Revelation 6, 1 to 8. And I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people sh- should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Revelation six one to eight. So keep that in mind, Zechariah and Revelation. Let me give you another comparison, and I'll ask you some questions. So next is Daniel seven seven through eleven, and I'm going to read the parallel in Revelation seventeen after that. But Daniel seven seven through eleven. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousand served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Daniel 7, 7 7-11. Now that's uh, 600 years or so before the book of Revelation was written. But then listen to Revelation 17. And He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. In verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So that might have been a lot to listen to, but let me just ask you some questions to think about it. What are some things that you notice about those four readings? What do you notice? First, there's a lot of similarity, isn't there? I mean, it's almost, almost the same sort of thing. Zechariah and then Revelation 6. Daniel and Revelation 17. It's almost the same sort of stuff going on, right? That's really important. It's really important to understand. It is the same sort of literature, the same sort of communication, the same sort of experience, the same sort of intent. Now, we talked some weeks ago about the book of Daniel, right? The thrust of the book of Daniel is very much like the thrust of the book of Revelation. It teaches us how to live as strangers in a strange land. So there's a lot of similarity in, in the Old Testament books and in, the, in Revelation. By the way, God does not see them as divided uh, like we might. They go, they're they all together in the flow of God's redemptive history. But what else are some things about that you see there as you, as you listen? There's a lot of images, right? Like, were you trying to imagine what this stuff looked like? It's hard to even think how to conceive. A beast iron teeth, you know, stomping on things and horns coming out of its head and Three horns get plucked out, and there's a horn up there with little eyes and a mouth and stuff. It's just like, what? I mean, it's these images, right? And in both Daniel and Zechariah, uh, as well as in Revelation, they're, they're symbols. There's images. They're not meant to be taken right literally. Does it mean that there's a literal beast with ten horns that will come up, come up out of the ocean and do all this stuff? And Daniel, is that what's going on, right? In Daniel, that the, the, we have the benefit in Daniel; those visions get interpreted, right? Daniel, So there's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that gets interpreted by Daniel. So we hear the meaning and we recognize in that, so, that, so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about this great statue, right? And the different parts of the statue represent different kingdoms and a, a rock comes and it grows and gets thrown at the statue and crushes it. And then Daniel interprets that dream saying it means the different kingdoms will reign, but then a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, God's kingdom, will come and ultimately smash those other kingdoms and fill the whole earth. So we recognize from that that these are images, symbolic images that represent reality but aren't the reality themselves. There's not a real beast. The beast represents something. The beast represents the kingdoms of this earth. The the rain, the 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 ultimately the godless reigns of this earth. So it represents, and there's so there's a lot of symbols in Revelation. Numbers, by the way, are used a lot in Revelation in the same way. Most of the numbers are symbolic. Now, as we go through, you'll see, it kind of makes sense actually, as you go through it, you can kind of see what's meant to be symbolic and what's not, just based on the context. But that's important to get. And, and people make mistakes in dealing with Revelation because they don't connect it to Daniel and Zechariah. By the way, Ezekiel, parts of, uh, parts of Exodus even. And is it Hosea? Maybe a part of Hosea as well. Are um, apocalyptic literature. Isaiah, parts of Isaiah as well, are apocalyptic. And so, people, when you don't connect it, they'll, they'll they'll forget that how symbols worked in the Old Testament, and they'll take it in a literalistic way. So they'll force a, a, you know, a literalistic interpretation to say, well, it actually means, you know, this thing will happen when it's representing something. So that's important to get. Anything else? Any other thoughts? I'm kind of answering my own questions, and I don't mind if you shout out and have something. It's dramatic, right? It's really dramatic. It's wild. It's kind of bizarre. And it's talking about these significant world events, right? It's like the end of the world or or major kingdoms that rise and fall, right? It's dramatic, and that's consistent. Apocalyptic literature. Is all those things we've said so far, but it's also really about the end times. It's, it's the unfolding, the revelation of what God's doing on a massive scale. And so Revelation does that. It teaches us about what God's doing on a massive scale. But remember the intent in all this, the intent in Daniel and elsewhere, is not that we'd live trying to figure out, like, you know, okay, is, is, you know, is Putin the Antichrist or not or whatever. It's not that we live there. It's that we understand He's in control and there's these great things going on. He's going to work it out. And so we live our lives as strangers in a strange land with our hope in Christ. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the Word of our testimony. So there's a practical implication from that. Not getting caught up in trying to figure out world events, but trusting God in what He's communicating to reign and rule over these things. So these are, these are things in the book of Revelation that, that are helpful to understand. Um, Also, just some key themes uh, as we go through this book. I hope this is making sense. I hope it's helping you. Uh, Some key themes that are in this book as well. One is the theme of the throne. The throne. A throne is a place where a king sits, right? Someone who rules and reigns sits on the throne. The word throne is used 34 times in Revelation. There's only 14 other times it's used in the New Testament, in the whole New Testament. 34 out of the 48 times occur in the book of Revelation. And at the very beginning of the book, before the book kind of gets into all the epic things that are happening or going to happen, there's two whole chapters, chapters 4 and 5, dedicated to the throne room. Dedicated to the throne room of God. That God is ruling and reigning over it all. He's in charge of it all. He's going to win. He's over it all. So there's this theme of the throne, of the rule of God. And there are thrones of men that oppose God, but the ultimate throne, God's throne, will be victorious over all. God reigns on that throne. The Lamb that was slain, God the Son reigns with the Father on that throne. And that's just another truth in all this that it's a paradoxical reign. It's not like a worldly reign. It's the reign of the Lamb who was slain. The One who suffered and died, who who lost, who failed, but in that failure, in His death, He redeemed people for God to reign with Him. And it's the Lamb that was slain, the the suffering and overcoming Lamb that reigns over it all and causes people to live in the same truth. And to live in and through sufferings but to overcome in Him. And to experience the reign of God ultimately. So the theme of the throne is there. It's so important to get that. And that's part of what God wants to do. He wants to bless us with this confidence in His reign that He rules despite appearances, despite opposition, despite setbacks, despite our fears of losing. God rules and God wins. God is on the throne. That's the message of Revelation for you, for us, for all of us. He reigns. That truth is to fill our minds and hearts and to gird us up Because as strangers in a strange land, living in this time of already and not yet and the brokenness that's around us, it's going to be hard at times, isn't it? People are going to struggle and fail. People are going to get sick. There's going to be bad things that happen. Persecution's going to happen. And if you don't know that He reigns over it all, you're not going to get through it. But if you know that He reigns, He's in control and He's good. He's the Lamb that was slain. He already went through suffering Himself. He did this to purchase us for Him. We now belong to Him. And He's our champion. And as we trust in Him, trust in him and run to Him, He's going to walk with us and get us through, through it to the other side. There will be a reward. And there will be a time when He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Knowing that He reigns, that He's on the throne, is so important for us. That's the message, one of the key messages of this book. Another another theme you see in it is just the the idea of heaven versus the world, good versus evil, angels versus demons, God's people versus ungodly people. There there is this battle going on. There's this battle in the book of Revelation. And much of the book, chapters 6 6 through 12, 6 through 19, even up there, is about the battle. It's about this battle that we live in. And to live in the time between Christ's ascension and His return is to live in a world where there's battle going on where good and evil exist alongside each other. And that means at times, it'll be difficult for us. there will be harm done to us. God's enemies will at times rise up and persecute the church and seek to destroy God's people. There's a battle, yet God continues to reign and He will resolve the conflict. There will be a full and final victory that He brings. An all-glorious, all-satisfying reward for those who have remained faithful. And that's another theme related to this in the book of Revelation. There's a call to faithfulness. There's a call to faithfulness amidst trial and suffering in the book of Revelation. Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean you simply pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and do it. It means you run to the Lamb that was slain. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb in the Word of your testimony. You cling to Jesus as He clings to you. You live in that grace and you remain faithful in that place. You you abide in your first love in Him and remain faithful to the end. Even amidst the battle. Somewhat related, in this book is just the idea of judgment and triumph. There are multiple judgments in it. There are three sets of seven judgments in this book. Uh, There's the seven seals are opened. And I'll give you an outline near the end. There are seven seals that are opened. uh, And yet, each seal, there is a judgment that comes. This is the seal that seals up the scroll that's God's plans for time and history. As those seals are taken off, there's judgments that come. There's seven of them. And later, there's seven uh, trumpets that are blown. And as each trumpet is blown, there's a judgment that comes. There are seven judgments. And then later on, there are seven bowls of God's wrath. And there are judgments that come. So these sets of seven judgments. Again, the number seven. Perfection. Completeness. And so there are seven there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. If you read those judgments, I encourage you to read it, you'll see they're actually pretty much the same. Repeated. And this is apocalyptic literature, so it's important to recognize that it may not be chronological as these things are revealed. There's a repetition of the same thing happening over and over again. So, so dig in and look at those judgments and you'll see, wow, it's pretty much the same thing. And so it's a re-emphasis, a revisiting of judgment. This idea of judgment. What's encouraging at the, at the end of all three of those judgments There's a celebration of the victory of the Lamb. And so in Revelation 7, 9-11, through 11, it talks about uh, their people are gathered and they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's a celebration of the victory of the Lamb. And then uh, Revelation 11, after the trumpets are blown, it says uh, there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So just a, a side note, that's Revelation 11. That's the center of Revelation. And, and they're saying that at that point that the kingdom of our Lord in Christ, the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. So it's the final victory, right? He's come back. He now rules and reigns in chapter 11. So that's confusing. I thought it ends in chapter 22. what Revelation does is it repeats the same theme. Okay, the battle, judgment and victory. And then another way to say that: the battle, judgment and victory. And then another way, the ba- the, then there's a section on the battle. And then it's again the battle, the judgment, and victory. And then at the end, of, again, the battle, judgment, and victory. So it's going over the same things. I encourage you to go read that and see for yourselves this week. You see these similarities. The same sort of judgment, the same sort of victory celebrated as well. So, reading this book, we come to realize well, what it's about it's about the battle, judgment, and victory, and living looking to the final judgment and the final victory. To engage Revelation is to realize that God will conclude all things with a final and terrible judgment on His enemies and a final and wonderful reward for those who have remained faithful, for those who have clung to Jesus. And that's part of the blessing of this book. To realize that. Now, it all depends on how you orient yourself towards the Lamb that was slain, doesn't it? That's key part of the message. The Lamb was slain. God Himself shed His blood on the cross to pay for our sins that we might not have to suffer judgment. That we might not have to suffer the just penalty for our rebellion against God. And through simple faith in Him, just simply running to Him, running away from our sins, saying, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to run to You. Thank You for Your blood shed for me. Lead me now. Strengthen me. Help me to live in You in this time period that can be so challenging. I know You can help me. Just that simple orientation of turning and trusting in Christ results in us experiencing forgiveness in life and being counted as His sons and daughters and being safe in Him. And so we can in this book, when we understand that, we can receive great blessing and His assurance and safety from all these judgments and instead receive reward. That's part of the message here. This book is an encouragement for those who have run to Christ that He'll be there for you. He reigns. And you'll get through it as you look to Him. As you walk in Him together. But it's also a warning for those who haven't. They will receive God's just response. That's what we see here. It's a scary book, guys. Because the judgments are heavy. But it's meant to warn us to run to Jesus. It's meant to be a blessing. It's meant to motivate us who do know Christ to go and share the truth with our friends and family because they need to know. They need to know that the final judgment will come and it is coming. Yet there's mercy and grace in Christ. There's reward to those who will run to Christ instead of judgment. They need to know that. And so this book should motivate us to tell them in 19... 83, a 100-foot section of the highway, Route 95 in Greenwich, Connecticut, collapsed at 1.30 in the morning. June 28th. Some motorists saw a tractor-trail just go over the abyss and barely escape themselves, stopping in time. The survivors immediately and frantically got out of their cars and tried to warn the approaching motorists that the, that the road was out, the bridge was out. Some did heed the warning. Some stopped and saved their lives. While others ignored their signals. One motorist even increased his acceleration when he saw them waving, gave a universal hand sign of disapproval, gave the finger, and drove over the cliff. The motorists who were rescued were thankful for their survival, but sad to see others not heed a simple warning. The book of Revelation is the motorist frantically signaling you to stop. To stop. Why drive over the bridge when there's a lamb who was slain? Who loves you and wants you to be rescued? A God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Who's there for forgiveness in life. And all you need to do is simply say you're sorry and thank Him for what He's done and ask Him to rule your life. That's how the book of Revelation is to function. It's a warning. It's an encouragement for us who have run to Jesus and received Him to tell others and to live in hope of His reign and rule and final victory. Well, I've gone over a little bit. I trust it's been helpful. Let me quickly give you an outline. If you could just project that outline. I think this will help you. You might want to take this down if you're going to read this week. First chapter is just introduction and backdrop. Chapters 2 to 3 are words to the seven churches. These are, uh, and I can put this on, uh, the, on Facebook and the website for you, but uh, second is the words to the seven churches. These are seven churches that are actual churches, but they really stand as examples to all churches how they're supposed to function. Next is the throne, chapters 4 to 5. And then there are the seven seals of judgment, 6 through 7, seven trumpets of judgment, 8 through 11, and then 12 through 15 is the battle. It's a section that just talks about the battle between good and evil. Then there's seven bowls of judgment, 16 to 17, and then final judgment of evil and victory, 18 through 20, and then it finishes with the new heaven and the new earth. That's a basic outline. Uh, Just nine different points in in the book of Revelation. I think that will help you. um, And I'd be glad to supply that to you if you weren't able to take it down. As the band comes up, let me just encourage you to, to consider a few things in light of this book. First, would you pray for us? Would you pray? Take time today and maybe on Sunday mornings to pray for us. This is not an easy book to preach takes a lot of work. And we want to handle God's Word faithfully. We want to serve Him. We want you guys to be blessed. I trust that God will work in such a way that like my pastor friend, we'll be able to say, wow, that was one of the best series. Because the Word of God will come alive to us and this book that was obscure and distracting before will now become something we feed on and, and supports us and propels us in Christ-likeness and mission. So pray for us, and pray for us as a church to have ears to hear, to be humble, be open to God's Word. So please pray. Second, can you read? Start reading the book of Revelation. Read it today. I'd encourage you if you can, by before the sun goes down today, before you go to bed today, take time to read part, or if not all of this book. Take time this week to read through it. And then be reading it. Each week as we prepare to go to the next section, after you hear that message, go home and read it. And ask God to help you understand the Word. Then third, receive God's Word. Let the Word of God come in and affect you. Affect your mind, but affect your heart. Affect your life. Ask God to change you. To change us. To make us more dependent on Christ. To live with greater joy in the Lamb that was slain and that rules and reigns right now. To have a fuller love for our glorious God. A greater burden for those without Christ. Oh, may this, may this book give us a burden for those without Christ. A deep love and a, and a desire to be compelled to do what we can, whatever we can, to make Him known that people might be rescued and know His great love. A holier and fuller approach to to living in Christ to shine your light in this dark world. Will you ask God and will you position yourself to allow Him to make you, to make us more like Christ? Let me pray for us in light of these things. Lord, we thank You for this Wonderful book. And I pray, God, that You would help us receive the blessing You have. We want to be blessed. We want to hear it read out loud. We want to apply ourselves to it. We want to keep it. We want to walk in it. We want to look like the beautiful bride we see at the end. We want to be a church that looks like You, O God, that images You and glorifies You. So help us. And do all these things and more for the glory of Your name we pray. Amen.